Welcome back to the Cycling Tips Podcast, everybody. I'm Kayla Fretz. It is Monday, May 9th. It's the Giro Rest Day. We're going to talk all about the Giro today. What went down in Hungary? What's coming up? Going out at, at tomorrow. Some other pretty tricky stages uh, in the next week or so. With us today, Dane Cash. How are you, Dane? I'm, uh, I'm doing all right. I am uh, attempting to podcast from the closet. I haven't done that in a while, but there's some landscaping going on the apartment complex here. <clears throat> so I've got my phone flashlight on to provide some lighting uh, to augment the not so great lighting in the closet. Yeah, uh, hopefully, hopefully this goes uh, this goes okay. You look great. Thank you. Clean shaven. Yeah, that's, that, new. That, that's the first time in a while. Yeah. <laughs> and Ronan McLaughlin, how are you? I'm good. Yeah, I'm not in a closet. I'm just in regular podcasting room. So no complaints here. You have your Everesting bike behind you. Yeah, it should really be out in the garage, shouldn't it? But for the moment, it's it's in the house. Shoddy Dave, all the way from France. How are you today? I'm good. I've, uh, as as you three know, I've, I should have all my curse words done and dusted for the day now. There won't be any on the podcast after trying to <laughs> trying to set up um, getting this podcast working today. It was a, a chore, wasn't it? Yeah, we were having some audio issues, some interesting audio issues on, on some gremlins in yeah. the system. Don't really know where those came from. Anyway, let's get into today's show. First and foremost, uh, we mentioned the Cycling Tips Fantasy competition on last week's episode. A bunch of you signed up. I think we've got like 83 people in the CT Podcast League in our fantasy, uh, which is pretty cool. I like that. Just a quick update on where we stand. I, I do believe you can still sign up. Don't quote me on that, <laughs> but I, I think I think you can still sign up. You obviously will have missed out on the points uh, for the first couple of days, but uh, well, as you're about to find out, you may not be all that far behind me anyway. Uh, so a quick CT podcast fantasy mini league update in first place, unsurprisingly, although granted tied for first place with a bunch of other people, is Dane Cash. <laughs> with 40 points has made all three no all three yes you've made all three of no you missed stage two almost everybody's got that i did because nobody two. picked because nobody picked yates for sean sean kelly trial. to be fair sean kelly picked yates for the time trial which at did the time i th- at the time i thought that's yeah it's a decent pick but nobody else is thinking about that but unbelievably he picked sean or not sean yates that would be a long time ago. <laughs> Sean Kelly picked Simon Yates to win the time trial. So Dane correctly picked Matthew Vanderpool on stage one, got 15 points. Uh, picked Tom Tumalin on stage two for 10 points, and Mark Cavendish on stage three for another 15 points. Now, there's, a, like I said, a whole bunch of you up there with Dane. Jeanette, eight. S. Finn, Wicko, Toby, Blair, Saigo, Mr. Begeer. Simon G, there's a, there's a there's a pile of you still in the running, and as I said before, whoever wins this thing, uh, which obviously means you have to beat Dane, whoever wins this thing gets a custom Cycling Tips podcast ad read from Shoddy Dave. So you get to write the <laughs> ad, and and Shoddy will attempt to read it. <laughs> attempts <laughs> the attempts end. the right word there, <laughs> <laughs> which I very much look forward to. Whatever the winner can come up with. Now, on the other end of the spectrum here, um, in very last, uh, our own Ronan McLaughlin. Ronan, what happened? What what happened here? There, there's a couple of things at play here. Chiefly amongst them is the, the, the terms and conditions in the small print. Now, I know that neither employees nor family members of employees of Cycling Tips can win this competition, so I have <laughs> decided to opt out. <laughs> Uh, secondly, is the fact that, uh, yeah, I, I may have I may have lost my train of thought, went down a couple of rabbit holes, and, and forgot to hit save or something like that. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> Any anybody who paid any attention to the Instagram uh, over the weekend would have seen that I actually tipped the stage one or on stage one correctly. I just didn't tip anybody in the fantasy league. <laughs> I mean, honestly, that's maybe less embarrassing than where I am, which is uh, I've been making a good faith effort, and I'm currently in 80th out of 82 with six points. <laughs> well, you know, you, both both you and I 
don't really like the points scoring system in Grand Tour sprinters jerseys, I, so that's, that's explains true. a lot as well. It does. It does. I I picked DC, I picked Dave Ulisi on stage one, so he was like eighth. Picked Caleb Ewan on stage three, that should have been fine. And picked Eduardo Affini on stage two, and he was second in a basically identical time trial last year to Filippo Ghana, who's not here. So that seems like a good pick, but alas, no. So there we are. That's the that's the standings at the moment. We'll keep you all updated. See who can beat out Dane by the end and get their custom. There's plenty of time. There's plenty of time. There's plenty of time for people to come back. And like I said, I'm pretty sure you can still sign up. It's, and it's it's definitely not too late to beat me uh, or Ronan. <laughs> it, might, it might be it might be rough catching Dane at this point. Let's get into the rest of the show. All right. So our last episode was the. Giro preview episode was before the race actually started. So let's talk through the last couple stages. You know, the sort of first major point here is just how ridiculously good Matthew Vanderpool is at just about everything. Dane, let's talk about stage one. What happened? Yeah, he delivered on favorite status for stage one. I mean, the the, the profile uh, looked to be the kind of thing that he would do well on. And... So I think all eyes were on Vanderpool for that finish into Visegrad. Uh, awesome finish, awesome stage. Honestly, the the, the number of medieval uh, sites to see uh, definitely checked a lot of boxes there. Uh, I was a fan, uh, and that uphill finale. You would think it would be good for Vanderpool, but he still had to deliver, and he really did. He uh, came around Beniam Gamay and took the win, took that pink jersey. Uh, so that's that's now a pretty strong record for Vanderpool in the taking of leaders' jerseys departments in his uh, handful of Grand Tours in which he's competed. Um, the the other sort of big storyline from that day was Caleb Ewan, who crashed uh, again. And if you look at it from the overhead, I mean, the, it sort of looked like he was just kind of riding too close, and he then actually said that after after the the stage after kind of recovering that uh he was just he was too close and yeah hit the wheel Hi, highly embarrassing way to fall down to be honest uh cuz you can't yeah. really point at anybody but your, yourself at that point I did that I did that once at Tulsa Tough right I crashed myself out of the winning breakaway with like a lap and a half to go did literally the exact same thing you just cross-eyed, right? You're just like, you just can't see and you're riding too close and you touch a wheel and anybody who has touched a wheel and fallen down, you sort of understand the physics of that. There's really, there's kind of nothing you can do at that point. Uh, but he is kind of making a, well, it's not the first time, we'll say that. <laughs> uh, he did obviously crash out of stage one of the Tour de France last year as well. Um, not a good way to kick things off. And I think that stage three, which we'll get to, Maybe showed that he's not sort of quite. Maybe he's feeling a little bit, uh, but it's super unfortunate for him. I mean, I, I don't think he would have won that stage. He looked like he was on the limit at that point, and at the at the point where he crashed, it was actually kind of too late for him to come around. Both Vinnie Grimai and and Vanderpool, uh, but still, like it would have been top three. Would have been sort of set up for. Uh, would have gotten some points for the Ciclamino jersey, although I don't think he really cares about that because he's probably not going to finish the bike race. Just unfortunate all around. I mean, that's not what you want to see stage one. Oh, we, we know he's not going to finish the Giro. A couple of podcast backs, we spoke to Alan Davis, who's now his, um, I suppose his coach, his mentor, his guide at La Sudal, and he's saying, yeah, he's, he, he's, there's no big plans for him to finish the, the Giro. At least I'm pretty sure we kept that bit in. <laughs> that actually makes the, makes the sprinter's jersey kind of an interesting... Points jersey, sorry, makes the points jersey an interesting, an interesting battle because it's going to end up being one of the kind of second tier sprinters, most likely, who actually makes it to the finish three weeks from now. Can I just jump in here and say, Vandenpol is, I've, I've never seen a rider on so many occasions come across the line and collapse. Usually, riders can sort of stand up and, and hold themselves up every race. He will collapse at the side of the road. And it's something that uh, I've thought about previously purely because I've got a friend who's a, a Nordic skier, cross-country skier from Finland, and he says, people think cycling's the hardest sport in, in the world. 
like aerobic sport in the world. And he, he says Nordic skiing is, he says, you you go to any Nordic skiing race and go across the finish line at, at the, and you'll see the, the first few guys just absolutely collapse like Matteo does. And it's just, it's always had me thinking like, why don't riders do it here? Obviously, it's probably a little bit more dangerous on the, on the bike, but... <laughs> But he does it time and time again, and it just purely shows how deep he must go, how how hard he must be able to push himself. So I, I was a Nordic ski racer at one point in time. I hate the collapsing thing. It's like a <laughs> cultural thing in Nordic skiing. I, I, I genuinely, I, it's like you have to like show that you tried hard enough or something by just splaying yourself across the finish line. I, I, I don't like it at all. Uh, but that's an aside. <laughs> that's just my own personal little pet beaver on a sport that I formerly competed in. I think, yeah, a little bit more dangerous on, on, a, on a road bicycle, shoddy. I mean, you're falling down on pavement instead of on uh, on snow. But Vanderpool does love a good lie down. He does it, like you said, he does it more often than not, particularly if he's won something. He just, he does the sort of lie down and like curl his head in his arms. And the photographers love it. They get the lie down photo and all the rest. And, you know, we've got all these Im- Getty images from the weekend of, or from Friday of, of Vanderpool doing that, but it, it feels it feels a touch dramatic to me. But again, I I don't like it in Nordic skiing either. I, I find it um, I don't know if you could get across the line doing however many watts he was doing. Uh, I feel like you could probably stand up afterward. Like, can can we see uh, not just the Koenig? Well, the Koenig's left Quick Step, but can we see La Texaco leaving Quick Step as a sponsor, moving over to Vandenpol next year because they make beds, don't they? So that would be a perfect, <laughs> perfect fit for the team. The, the, the Swan years just lay down a mattress 100 meters after the finish line, <laughs> give, somewhere, give somewhere to Vanderpool to, uh, to, to just have a little lie down after each stage. And can you imagine then the photos would be sponsor correct, right? I mean, he'd be on a Latexco or whatever that company is. Uh, he'd, be on a, he'd be on that sponsor correct mattress. I feel I should come to his defense here because you know watching that final climb there was like he was in good position out of good position he was he, he really really struggled up that last climb and when he crossed the line he couldn't even lift his hands to celebrate so <laughs> i think we need to give him a bit of slack here like he properly emptied the tank and yeah just did just to get this stage one which i admire um and falling and i just think you can empty the, the tank and then and then sit against a wall you don't have to like lay down mm. again this the, the the context for this is this has annoyed me in Nordic skiing for <laughs> decades, and so when I see it in cycling, I just uh, ah, yeah, it's a, feels overly dramatic for me. Nonetheless, it was a spectacular finish. Uh, in second place, Binyam Germay, who was my pick ahead of ahead of the race, and and came oh so close. I was listening to the the, the audio from the mix zone, which you know the riders sort of come through. They get sent through this sort of channel of fencing. And they basically get asked the exact same question over and over and over and over again for about 10 or 15 minutes. And, you know, he, he said, I counted 18 times. I am happy or some version therein. He was genuinely happy, I think, with, with second place. And I think that we maybe, if almost any, I, I said this in the story that I wrote on Friday, if almost anybody else said that, you wouldn't really believe them, uh, particularly if it was a rider sort of in the latter half of their career. But for somebody who is very much on the up and up in his first stage of his first Grand Tour, you know, I think that the the proximity to what could have been is probably slightly painful, right? I mean, obviously, Magliarosa, uh, in his first <laughs> Grand Tour, and the first stage of his first Grand Tour, the first Grand Tour stage win for a black rider, uh, you know, the biggest moment for his country, Eritrea, in a, in a very long time. I think probably since either <laughs> since his win at Gent Wevelgem or since 2015 when Daniel Tekla Hemenot won, won the polka dot jersey, wore the polka dot jersey for quite a while at the Tour de France. It would have been massive. I think he was able to put that out of his mind, and he seemed genuinely pleased with, with second place. And frankly, it looks pretty pretty likely that he could grab a stage at some point in this race. And I think he's he's a sprinter who might actually make it to the end of the Giro, and so therefore is a pretty solid bet for the points jersey as well. I'm just doing some maths here, and he just think he would have looked up to Cavendish all his life because he would have been, well, he would have been five years old when Cav turned pro for that small um, 
continental team t- team Sparksky, but when he was when he had joined team team T-Mobile, he would have just been six years old. So he would have looked up to Cav all his career as like an idol. I'm guessing. So it must be something else to go up against him. Yeah, fifteen years later or so, and actually, yeah, he's only twenty-two, right? Exactly. Yeah, and I, I think you've made a good point there, Kelly, and that he's. He probably has to be one of the favourites for the Chicomino jersey, and that um, you know he's he's been up there on two of the three stages so far. He's uh, let me just pull it up here. He is currently sitting second in in that uh, in that jersey competition at the moment, with only Vanderpool ahead of him. Whether or not Vanderpool stays for the whole Giro, I don't believe he is. Behind him is Cavendish, who isn't staying for the whole Giro. And then we know that the Giro quite often has GC favourites uh, actually up in the points competition as well. So, you know, if he can if he can s- stick in the whole way to the finish and keep placing on stages the way he has been, uh, he surely has to be the clear favourite. Add to that the fact that he, you know, he has a Ciclamino coloured helmet already. <laughs> he had the full kits ready to go yesterday. Uh, surely there's a bit of a hint there in that he is actually targeting that competition. Yeah, that's a that's one thing I want to bring up. It's like that team, you know, last year they never turned up to any Grand Tour with customized kit ready to dig out the the truck, not <laughs> thinking that they're going to get in a jersey. They've turned up this year a hundred percent ready. They had the pink jersey last year, didn't they? If I remember rightly, at some point, and then mm-hmm. this year, yeah, they they have the full kit ready to rock and roll. We get into the coming stages later in the show but there are there are some opportunities for Gramai coming up uh including some some more difficult days he did say after stage one that he, he you know he likes those more difficult sprint stages uh and some there's 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 a fair number of those in this Giro that are sort of just tricky finishes or slight uphills or things like that where it might not be just a pure pure speed test let's get into stage two though time trial uh kind of a well <laughs> I guess a surprising winner. We were surprised by it. Uh, Simon Yates has done good TTs in the past. I mean, he had a good, good TT at Perry Nice, and he's clearly in in flying form at this Giro. But nonetheless, with riders like Tom Dumoulin on the on the start list, you you wouldn't necessarily have picked him. Uh, and I think the fact that not a single person, I believe, in our fantasy league picked him to win that stage out of 80-something people, most people would not have picked him to win that stage. You may, might have picked him for somewhere in the top 10. Um, but that was, that was a surprising result and and certainly an interesting one going forward. Uh, I mean, he's you know he's obviously right up there in the GC, and we'll talk about Etna, which is coming up on Tuesday. You know, He probably doesn't want the Magliarosa just yet, uh, but nonetheless, he took a couple seconds on on all of his G, sort of GC rivals, and, and that has to feel pretty good. He just has to kind of... He's going to have to play the next week, I think, quite carefully to make sure that that Bike Exchange does not have to sit on the front for and control the Giro for too long, uh, given what's coming up at the last week or so of the race. Dane, were you surprised by Yates' performance there? I was. Uh, I feel like I, I kind of am reminded a little bit of Rigoberto Oran uh, with Simon Yates, because there are times when Rigoberto Oran really does great time trials. And then there are times when Rigoberto Oran just disappears in time trials. Uh, and I didn't, I would not have considered Simon Yates a great time trialist. He's not a bad time trialist. I think I said that, you know, in, in my, in my Giro preview that he's, he's done plenty of decent time trials, but this was, this was really good. I mean, th- this was not a time trial that I think really suited him. There was a little climb at the end, but it was not, a, this is not a hill climb. I mean, it's not like the, the, the kind of very one, the, the one they would do at Paranese for all those years where they would go up a, a mountain, basically. Um, this was short. So there's another kind of reason I wouldn't have expected him to win it. And yet, uh, he was great. Uh, so I think he's clearly shown he has definitely improved that TT. I think that's that's a big, uh, big boon for him. And the ability to do that while potentially, I think we have to wait and see, but Continuing to climb at the same level he was climbing in the past, to me, that that really improves his chances in this Giro because he's now picked up some time on Richard Carpas. Not not a ton of time, uh, but there is another TT ahead, which, you know, if he can continue to have that same level of success, I think that levels the playing field a bit because uh, I would have considered Carpas the, the 
not the heavy favorite, but you know the, the favorite over Yates. And now I think they're pretty close uh, in the in the GC battle, uh, which is great. I think that that adds some intrigue, uh, particularly since some of the other riders who I would have expected to do better, well, well one one in particular in Joe Almeida, uh, did not do quite as well as I would have thought. And it's not like Almeida had a bad TT, uh, but it wasn't quite what I was expecting. So it's nice that Yates had a good one so that, that continues to have, uh, I think that there will continue to be some intrigue in the GC for, for quite a while. Yeah. I mean, it's, Yates has 24 seconds on Carapaz already. Like it's, that's not, that's not nothing, right? I yeah. mean, I mean, Grand Tours have been, have been won and lost by less. Uh, and we are really only one GC stage in at this point. Uh, so that's, yeah, that, it's, it's significant. And, if you're looking ahead to the granted relatively short time trials that are coming, um, it's still, you could still probably bank on Yates taking a couple more seconds out of Carapaz in those two. So an interesting. Carpas must be, uh, must be, have been frustrated because I feel like he did fine in the TT. He, he did a TT that I would have expected him to do. He did, it wasn't great, uh, but he was uh, 19th in the TT and ahead of some guys. I mean, he was ahead of, uh, Josh Van Emden, Castro Viejo, uh, Alex Dowsett, uh, guys who you would expect to do pretty good time trial. Uh, and yet, he still loses 28 seconds to Yates. And I think that probably, there might be some alarm bells going on, I, I, I would think, over at, at uh, Ineos, because now they have some time to make up, and I don't think they were expecting to need to do that. Another name who really impressed me, we've already talked about him uh, quite a fair bit, Matthew Vanderpool. Uh, is not, I feel like he's so often compared to Watt Van Aert for obvious reasons. Uh, but one of the things that has differentiated them thus far in their careers is that Waffen Art has proven time and time and time again that he's a fantastic time trialist. Uh, Matthew Vanderpool, we really just, we didn't know. I mean, there, he's, been in, he's been in one grand tour uh, thus far in his career. So now he has been in one grand tour plus three 21sts of a grand tour. And we don't have a lot of data, therefore, on how good he is at time trialing at the highest level. Uh, and he went out and did a great one uh, to, to come in second. And I don't think that was a big surprise, necessarily, because it was a short TT. I mean, it really looked like it would suit him. Uh, but we just we didn't, we didn't have a lot of data. And we're continuously getting data points. And after the last two, you know, kind of Grand Tour TTs we've seen him in, I think we're starting to realize, okay, he can time trial pretty well, particularly in a short time trial. Uh, that that is his skill set that he absolutely has. So I think in in future he's going to be a little bit. It's going to be a little bit less surprising every time he does something like this. Uh, now, now we know. Okay, he's he's pretty good at that. From what from what we know last year at the tour, because uh, the stories surrounding last year's tour's time trial after he got the yellow was that he stayed up most of not most of the night, but a fair chunk of the night, uh, refining his position in the car park or something. If it, if the stories are, are correct. So you do wonder how much work he's gone into this past winter with sort of re- really taking some time and refining his TT position. If he's really sort of gone, right, yeah, this is something that I can actually work on now after, yeah, basically cobbling together a decent position in the car park and some decent bits and pieces from uh, sponsors last year at the tour and doing a, a blinding time trial there. And then, yeah, you do wonder if he's gone away, put a bit of time and effort in, the team's put a bit of time and effort in, and this is the result that's uh, come out, which is the same apparently as Simon Yates, because th- that team uh, has been working with Giant and a rumour has it that they have um, been working really hard on getting his position nailed and getting all the right kit in place for them to uh, yeah, actually perform at the highest level. I mean, this is almost a bit of a, of a mini nerd nugget here, but I mean, I think that a lot of teams feel like they're currently chasing Yumbo Visma for the last couple of years. Uh, Yumbo has been exceptional in time trials for the last couple of years. And Ronan, we've talked about this before, but a big part of that was essentially the, the incredible attention to detail that they've had from an aerodynamic perspective, from a, from an efficiency perspective. And much like, you know, Team Sky suddenly using uh, altitude a lot more than had previously been done in sort of the, the 2012, 2013 kind of time timeline. And then, then also everybody has to do it, right? Got to keep up with the Joneses. I think that that's kind of currently happening in TTs, which is, I mean, teams have always known that, that, 
paying attention to aerodynamics has been important and they would spend some time in a wind tunnel but it's sort of more than that it's like it's it's not even marginal gains it's it's minuscule gains at this point but they do particularly in a tt they really add up and it's forced anybody else who wants to do anything on gc to to just put a hyper focus on it and bring in real experts to do it um you know like i think back to was it probably five six seven years ago now where ef had kind of a run of really good team time trials and, and good time trials as well they had robbie ketchell on staff like it takes somebody like that to to just dig into the the minutia of of these events and and really figure out how to do it properly and it sounds like bike exchange has done that over the last well in the off season basically and they come out come out swinging this sounds like a perfect opportunity to plug my video i did with total energies earlier on this year where they i i joined them in paris to see how fast they could get pierre latour uh on a tt bike and um yeah they basically managed to shave 15 watts off his current position well his old position to his current position that's up on youtube if you want to go check that out yes yeah, as, as long as we're absolutely massive as long as we're plugging things over the weekend we published an interview i did with alex dowsett last week and he actually spoke to this very point where he mentioned that he's losing the advantage that he once had in time trials because so many other teams are catching up but interestingly he did say that some teams are still making quite a few big mistakes uh, and that we do as you just mentioned see time and time again the likes of Yumbo Visma the likes of Ineos the likes of I think even Bora from time to time place more and more riders within the top 20 of a Grand Tour and place their non-time trailers higher on the results sheets at Grand Tour time trials than we would have seen similar teams do 10, 15, 20 years ago yeah I mean I remember doing a pit walk with Josh Portner um, at the Tour de France a couple of years ago probably three, four years ago and just walking around and, and you know he's one of these individuals who pays pretty close attention to this and he's kind of picking out stuff that teams had done wrong at that point like one of the big ones that sort of caught everyone's attention was Ineos was using uh like quick release skewers I think it was or maybe through axles I can't remember what which bike it was on quick release, but anyway it had yeah. a handle on it yeah it was quick releases it had a handle on it instead of just being a, a bolt-on uh, axle you know that you would you would screw on with an allen key and he's like yeah that's you know over the course of this race, this distance at this speed, that's like that's going to be a couple seconds. It's like four to six seconds right there. It's like little things like that multiplied by you've got 20 of them. Uh, that, that's exactly what we're talking about, right? And that's where all the teams are paying very close attention to that sort of stuff and not using you know quick releases with handles can, can <laughs> we can like we that. can we save a bit for me to include in the nerd nugget at the end otherwise i may be obsolete here <laughs> all right we'll, we'll, we'll come back to this we'll come back to this let's get into let's get into stage three and i mean for me the sort of the most interesting stage uh of the three thus far i stage one was great i love seeing Benny Gramai up there watching vanderpool do his thing is always fantastic stage two is good watching simon yates kind of exceed expectations but stage three i love the mark cavendish narrative uh the man can build a narrative around himself better than better than most and this was well it was it was a a stake in the sand uh mark cavendish wins the first sort of true sprint stage of the race uh with a with a perfect lead out we should say uh but a, a slightly early a slightly early jump like 300 meters out or so, but the, the, the power and the speed to to hang on to it. Yeah, I would say that the, the distance from which he went, which is about yeah 300 meters, uh, kind of reduced the impact that a great lead out could have because uh, 300 meters is a really long way to go. I think that time and time again, we see guys dropped off at 300 meters and they get swamped by other sprinters. So I feel like this was more on Cav than other sprints have been because when you have Michael Morkow, you often... You get dropped off in the perfect spot. You get to launch from 150 or 200 meters out, and nobody can come around. There's just not enough time to come around you. This, to me, was a statement from Cav, uh, not just from his great team around him, which is there. He does have that. Uh, but the fact that he was able to win a sprint from 300 meters out, to me, suggests he's in flying form, and, and he is going to be hard to beat as long as he's in this race. Yeah, it was one of those where you're just waiting for him to get swamped. You know, he went so early, and it, it struck me immediately just how early he had launched. But, you know, I think he was forced into launching early. It was, if I 
believe, if I remember right, it was slightly, ever so slightly downhill with the tailwind. So he sort of, you know, it, it worked in his favour to go early, but still 300 metres is a long way. And it was one of those sort of shots that you're just waiting for the sort of crowd of sprinters behind him just to swamp him, and they just didn't. Uh, and then he came out with a statement about never being the strongest or never being the fastest, which, you know, yesterday no, he was nonsense. both of those. <laughs> nonsense yeah he, he no nonsense <laughs> i mean maybe, maybe he's never been the strongest right if you if you look at his his threshold power like yeah there's a reason why he he has never won a yellow jersey at the tour de france not never worn never won i mean but that that's nonsense i mean he's he's he was the fastest sprinter in in the race yesterday i guess what i was when i was referring to when i when i talked about this sort of perfect lead out was the fact that they were kind of nowhere to be seen with like a k and a half 2k to go and managed to get themselves with the help of that last roundabout managed to get themselves into the perfect position even if he was dropped off 100 meters too early or so well the results speak for itself a little bit but it, that was a super super impressive impressive maneuver i would say and sort of on the the lead out train there was an interesting quote that that cavendish said after the stage uh quote if you have guys like this referring to his his lead out, you know, Mike Marco and Ballerini and uh, Ben Leiberger. It makes me full of confidence. Then I know it's on me and there are no excuses. That's nice having a full team here like Fabio. So it's nice to be able to deliver. Now, the sort of like undercurrent of that is that Cav has talked a number of times through the spring and last year about essentially getting sent to races with the B team, right? Uh, in fact, they had shoes with B team on them <laughs> last year. And that, uh, in this sort of ongoing discussion of, of who Quickstep is going to send to the Tour de France, that is relevant, right? That the fact that they sent a true lead-out team, not a B team, Michael Morco is not part of the B team, uh, to this Giro d'Italia to support Cavendish, I think is a really interesting kind of dynamic. Uh, and, and again, I understand why Cav hates answering questions about the, the Jakobsen thing. So does Fabio, actually. But it is an interesting storyline, and I think the journalists are going to continue to ask. And fans, frankly, are going to continue to wonder all the way up until the Tour de France who's going to go. And that little bit of context around sort of who they sent to the Giro and that single line from Cav, like, I got a good team like Fabio always does, which is basically what he was saying. That's a really interesting little tidbit for me. I thought the... Uh, that's a really good point about the impact of the lead out and how it brought him into position. And it's something that I do think gets, uh, maybe we overlook the value of that because of the dominance for so long of Sagan, who very rarely had people doing that for him. So he was able to kind of work his way through to the front of a lot of different sprints, whether he won them or not, he was really able to kind of weave his way through. And that's really hard to do. Uh, when you have big Michael Morkow kind of, pushing and and the rest of that team uh, that that's really helpful and i think it's a really good point that w whether or not they dropped him wherever they dropped him off the fact that he was there is a big deal and it's not easy to get there and there's plenty of other sprinters who were too far back yeah yesterday we had alpeson had a leader train going fdj had a leader train going uh intermarche had a leader train uh pretty sure there was another one too that i'm forgetting but as we came under the one kilometer to go kite quick step Lotto. had Lotto as well, yes. Quickstep had three riders in front of Cavendish, which is, you know, with a K to go to have three riders there in front of him is just, it, it kind of makes me wonder now, I, I want to actually go back and watch it again, but how did they end up having to launch so early? But still, <laughs> it, it's just insane to think that they can be that well organized in, you know, such a chaotic uh, situation to have the, not only have the train, you know, get together, but get together at the right time and, you know, drop him off, drop off Morku just in time to, you know, it's just, I've, I've been there in that situation and it's, it's, it is chaotic. Like, and I, I just, I, I struggled yesterday as I watched the replay over and over again. I started was struggling to understand how they can be that well organized with so many other teams trying to do the exact same thing at the exact same time, but yet they still, you know, they, they pulled it off and that's, you know, it, Yes, there's an element of luck in it, but that's not that's not really luck. That's they made their own luck, is is my opinion on that. Yeah, I was super impressed by Bert Van Leiberger, who is not a, a lead out man that we talked about all that much. Ballerini is kind of a known quantity. Michael Marco is is a, is a known quantity, but big Bert Van Leiberger did a, did a phenomenal job in that finale. Uh, and I, when I say big, like he's like eighty 
485 kilos. Like he's a he's a big boy, uh, and and was clearly able to to put out the required power. Uh, and I, yeah, I was just super impressed by him. 20 29 years old, um, and, and again, like not a name that we've thrown around all that often, particularly on this podcast, but somebody who is clearly very key internally at Quick Step to that lead out. Now I could open myself up to a load of aggro here because I I think I think it's I think it was you, Ron, and me, me and yourself talking at the classics. I'm going to drop you in here with it that we were saying at the tour <laughs> last year. Yes, Cav won a lot of stages and it was amazing to see the comeback. But and I will preface this by saying yes, you've got to be in it to win it. But he wasn't up against the strongest of fields once several people had crashed and whatnot. So, yeah, he, even though he won a lot of stages last year, it it wasn't up against the, the best field going. And it always had me questioning whether, yeah, Cav's, Cav's sprinting good again, but is he back to his best? This definitely says he's back to his best. Like, I'm quite uh, happy to eat my words. I think it was Ronan that might have been saying I, that. I, I think everybody had that conversation at some point last year. It was... You know, you, it, we'll it, drop everybody it in it, eh? <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't want to stay too long on the sprints. I know we've got other things to get to, but I actually, I kind of disagree with with that sentiment because there's no Sam Bennett, there's no Dylan Grunewagen, and there's no Fabio Jakobsen here. And Caleb Ewan crashed. Caleb Ewan. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, I want to see Fabio Jakobsen. You know, for like Team Netherlands at a Dutch race, uh, getting to go up against Mark Cavendish. That's not going to happen, but that would be nice. Uh, I, I do want to see them head to head because we we still haven't really seen that and and there are yeah as I kind of mentioned there's plenty of other guys too so I I don't know I'm I'm not sure that I I still kind of have a little bit of that in the back of my mind where it's wondering okay it, it, he's he's back but can he beat the best of the best or or is that ever going to matter will all those riders ever be in the same place I I think that question mark is still there you know Arno Demar isn't hasn't had his best sprinting legs the last two years and Fernando Gaviria third hasn't had his best sprinting legs recently either but you know first of all you know he he won the stage so we can't take that away from him but secondly you know just to go back to that lead out and then to go back to how far Cavendish led that sprint out from from 300 meters to go yeah you know, if if he wasn't the you know I, I would say of, of the top five six yesterday if he wasn't head and shoulders above the other sprinters there he would have got swamped but just yeah. to you know to take it all the way to the line from it that far out yeah it was uh you know regardless of who's here and who's not here that was super impressive we we should put all this in context too i mean he's unquestionably the greatest sprinter of all time right like that there's there is now no there's not really a, like you can maybe point to like total grand tour stage wins and things like that but he's even approaching that record I mean, this is a 16th Giro stage. 16th Giro stage. The first one was in 2008. There are riders in the peloton who were eight years old at that when Mark Cavendish won his first Giro stage. He's still at it and still has it clearly. I, it, it, to me, it's it's astounding. And I yeah, and I think that sort of the the question marks over. You know, has he overtaken riders like Ciplini and Pataki and things like that? Has oh. he been able to do that? I, I, clearly for me, because like those guys, again, the, the only kind of stat that he's that he's behind on is total Grand Tour stage wins. And the reason he's behind is because riders like Ciplini and Pataki won a thousand Giro stages with nobody else around with giant trains and things like that, right? To me, it's one of the least important stats. And if you look at almost anything else, he's, it's, it's, it's so clear and obvious that it... Most sprinters, they have this like three to five year peak. It's quite short, right? And again, we're talking about Cav, who has now won Giro stages from 08 to 2022, 16 of them. Uh, and his Tour de France record is is only a year or two shorter than that. It, it's, yeah, there, there can be no debate for me at this point in time. All right, advert time, people, or mid-rollers, we call it in the business, because this week's episode is brought to you by Hammerhead Carew 2. Do you want to get more out of your rides beyond just distance, time and pace? How about advanced GPS navigation and the ability to see upcoming hills, you know, 
ones that you might want to avoid or even taking. Anyway, the Hammerhead Karoo 2 helps you find your path forward and unlock your full potential. The Hammerhead Karoo 2 is the most advanced GPS cycling computer available today with industry-leading mapping, navigation and routing capabilities that set it apart from other GPS options. So you can explore with confidence and on-the-go flexibility. For limited time, our listeners can get a free custom colour kit and an exclusive premium water bottle with the purchase of a Hammerhead Karoo 2. All you need to do is visit hammerhead.io right now and use the promotional code CYCLINGTIPS at checkout to get yours today. This is an exclusive limited time offer only for our podcast listeners, so don't forget to use your promotional code CYCLINGTIPS. That's a free custom colour kit and a premium water bottle with the purchase of a Karoo 2. So go to hammerhead.io Add all these free items into your car and use the promotional code CYCLINGTIPS today. Right, back to the podcast. Moving on, moving on from Cav and my little my little Cav rant there. And into what is coming at this Giro d'Italia. We've got some fascinating stages coming up, not least of which will be on Tuesday. So if you're by the time you're listening to this, it'll be imminent that the riders will be heading up Mount Etna. Now, there's a couple different ways up Mount Etna, which is a volcano. Uh, thankfully, the volcano has, has not, I was Googling this earlier, has not erupted since February. Uh, so oh, that, that's such a, that's a, that's a low, <laughs> I mean, like, since February. There's other volcanoes that haven't erupted in thousands of years. In the Giro, it's like, oh, it hasn't erupted since February. Fine. Would you, would you rather stand on a volcano that hasn't erupted in a thousand years or one that erupted in February? There's pros and cons to both. Yeah. All I know is I feel like a volcano should get a special category. Like, it shouldn't just be a cat one. There should be, a, like, a, an asterisk. Cat one. Also, this is an active <laughs> volcano. <laughs> I've been up Etna a couple different times. Uh, in fact, I was up Etna the last time it finished in this particular manner. So there's, there's a couple different ways up the volcano. Uh, and this... This year, it will be actually a sort of a new way in some ways, but finish with an old way. So the first half is from Alnet, which is uh, been done, which is the new part, I should say. But then the second half is the Nicolosi side, uh, which is the one that Contador won up in 2011, which is, that was the first time I was on, I was on Etna. It's 14K from there. So that last 14 kilometers is identical to the stage that Contador won in 2011. Dane, where does the GC stand right now? Like, what are we looking at? Obviously, we talked about Simon Yates a little bit. We talked about Carapaz a little bit. What else is going on on the GC? Who's going to be looking at this stage and, and wanting to do something? Yeah, so obviously, or maybe not obviously, I don't know how much of the Giro our listeners have been watching so far, but Matthew Vanderpool is the current race leader. But in terms of the big GC favorites, Simon Yates is currently sitting in the best position because he's only 11 seconds down. Tom Dumoulin had a nice time trial, 16 seconds down. He's in third overall. Both of those riders, I think, are going to factor. Wilco Kelderman, not too far back. Richard Carpass, not too far back. Uh, all of those riders, Joel Almeida as well, all of those riders I think are going to kind of be in the mix. Uh, I think this first really hard climbing stage with its very steep finale is going to favor Yates and Carapaz. Uh, and it's going to be the kind of day where the likes of Tom Dumoulin and Joel Almeida will hope that they can hold on uh, and not not see too much time. Uh, this is going to be a tough one. I mean, it's a steep, it's a steep final climb. I do think uh, Matt Denise does a, does did a, did a fine job of pointing out that I think the stage itself uh, could be for the break. So that that's something to watch out for if you're. I mean, it's probably too late by the time you're listening to this, but if you're trying to make a stage pick, uh, keep that in mind. A breakaway could could go the distance here. We'll get this up before the stage goes. We'll get this up. Uh, I, I do. I, I think that a breakaway is somewhat likely. I think that Vanderpool and his team are going to have little interest in in trying to trying to hang on to, to pink because it's basically impossible probably going up Etna. And most of the real GC favorites don't actually want it yet. So like Bike Exchange isn't going to try to control things and Ineos isn't going to try to control things. And it'd be interesting to go through the go through the GC at the moment 
and pick out some of those riders that that have said that they're here for stage wins, but are sort of world class climbers, right? The the, the Bakumolamas of the of the race. And there's a couple stages actually for those type of riders coming up. I think Etna could be one of them. Stage seven is another, again because it's because this Giro is so backloaded, which most of them are. The last week is so hard that the GC riders really are not particularly interested in in taking pink anytime soon. Uh, it's been a very long time since anybody successfully took pink from some sort of start to finish at the Giro. And it wouldn't surprise me if we see, as a result, a bunch of breakaway victories this week. Totally. And if you're looking for a breakaway rider, or should I keep this for my fantasy league to to bring me back up the standings no so, share it with us share it, leads it with me, us it, lead, it leads me on to my next uh, point so I'll, I'll mention it first of all is Leonard Kamna he was on the attack on stage one and then lost a minute and a half and was really good in the time trial and lost another two minutes coming into the sprint finish yesterday so it looks to me like he's taken two packets to give himself a bit of freedom clearly has the form and you know with my, my original point here was going to be Walco Kelderman, who you mentioned, Dane, has sort of kept himself under the radar all season, but has had a strong sort of opening weekend. Let's say nothing, you know, he hasn't he hasn't taken, or hasn't lost 28 seconds like we've seen Carapaz done. He has had a solid opening couple of days, and I think, you know, he could go on to build on his podium uh, finish from a couple of years ago. And add to that was Peo Bilbao, who I thought was pretty impressive over the weekend as well. Third on the opening stage, not really the sort of uphill finish that would that would suit him traditionally. So um, yes, you and Christ, perhaps he would have been fourth otherwise, but still looking like a, a solid bet for for either tomorrow or GC. If I'm going to throw another suggestion out there for the type of rider that we're talking about, Thomas DeGent has already lost nearly five minutes. Uh, and that was Thank for you. sure on purpose. <laughs> I think I read somewhere last week that Thomas DeGand has sort of lost his uh, confidence or something in the peloton. I think the Cobrelli incident particularly uh, gave mm. him a bit of a fright. Um, so, yeah, I hope you're right. Uh, but just to clarify, I'm not saying Pelo Peo Bilbao for tomorrow. I think he's firmly in the GC hunting. He'll not be given any, any freedom tomorrow. I think, uh, yeah, I'm looking at, like I said, I'm looking at, I'm looking at tomorrow, Tuesday, and then stage seven, which is Diamante de Potenza, 196k, has something like something like a 4,000 meters of climbing or something like that. It'll be very interesting to see what Yates actually does tomorrow. You know, he, he came out with those quotes that you know, let's stay calm. We still got Etna to come. We still have a lot of racing to come. And of course, he had his, you know, um, where he lost the Giro in 2018 after being so dominant in the opening week. So it'll be interesting to see. Does he try to push on on Etna tomorrow to try and? You know, establish an advantage, or is he sort of happy to to let the racing come down to the to the next couple of weeks? Because, you know, there it, it's quite interesting the route this year. There is, I think, there's actually more total climbing than there was last year, but there is so little of it above two thousand meters that, you know, surely that's going to play into Yates's hands as well. That we haven't got the super high altitude that, if we look at his at least. As far as the bookies are concerned, his biggest rival is Richard Carapaz. He he would be relying on that high high altitude stuff. We ju- we just haven't got that this year. So, given how well he's going in the time trial, or he won the time trial, you can't really go any better. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm I'm just really interested to see how how Yates does approach tomorrow's stage. If he goes all in, or if he's happy to to sort of sit back. I think I think it'll depend if there's a break up the road. Like if somebody else is going to take pink, I think that he'll he'll make a move in the finale and and try to take time on rivals but without that maybe he'll just sit uh again i don't think that they want pink uh matt white has said as much they just it's it's too early so matt white the director over at bike exchange dane let's briefly run through what's coming up after etna so we have a couple days in sicily what, what, what else is coming yeah so stage five is an interesting one there's a big cat two climb um like in the first third of the day maybe first half of the day um and then it's the downhill, and then there's mostly flat to the finish. So it's one of those stages where the break's going to like their chances, but if an Alpes and Fenix or a team that has a pretty, you know, a versatile sprinter does the work, uh, they could pull the break back, and then you could see a guy like Vanderpool take the win. Uh, stage six, that could be the day for the sprinters again. Uh, there is there is not too much in the way of difficult topography there. So another potential day for the sprinters. 
Stage seven is a really interesting one uh, as they climb in the Apennines, and and it's just uh, no, no huge climbs, but a lot of climbing, uh, a lot of up and down kind of stair step climbs. Well, I guess there, I mean tech, there's a cat one, so that that's probably a, a I guess that's a huge climb, but it's it's kind of a stair step, uh, and I think that's going to be a tough one for the GC guys. But the stage is definitely a breakaway day. I mean that's one of the most breakaway looking profiles I've seen, uh, so that that'll be cool for the for the break. Stage eight, uh, possibly a sprinter day. It's very lumpy. Definitely a Matthew Vanderpool day. Maybe Binium Grimai. And uh, and then yes, yeah, stage nine is going to be really interesting. The Blockhouse day. Uh, that is going to be really hard. <laughs> and it's it's got a Cat One climb before the Blockhouse climb. Uh, so there will be some tired legs going up the very steep finish. To Blockhouse, which uh, ends at uh, 1,665 meters. That's definitely going to have some big GC implications before the second uh, rest day. Yeah, I think that's the that's the moment at which the GC riders will, would be okay with taking the Magliarossa. I think that's probably the stage where if they can take two, three minutes out of, or less, out of uh, their competition there. I think they will absolutely try to do so. There will be no more tactics at that one. It'll just be who can who can get up that climb the fastest. Over five thousand meters of climbing that day. That's yeah, a big day. That's <laughs> a big day. Uh, a big day. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about what else is coming later this week. Again, we're going to run some extra Giro podcasts, so you can you can listen for another one probably on Thursday or Friday of this week to talk through what's happened in the first couple of days uh, back in Italy. Uh, we did. We skipped over the most important story of the weekend, which was Matthew Vanderpoel and his decision to put ketchup on his spaghetti uh, a couple years ago. A video, a video surfaced, a damning video surfaced over the weekend. Uh, our own Johnny Long, who was on the ground in Hungary, asked him about this, in fact. Uh, let's, let's just run that audio. Hear him defend himself. Next question. Manchet, there was a video of you on social media today putting ketchup on your spaghetti. Are you worried that when you get to Italy, all the Italians are going to be mad at you? <laughs> yeah, there was in Belgium before a cycle course race, so when I have the chance to put tomato sauce, I choose it above ketchup, but it was, uh, I was in need to. Thank you, Mathieu Van Der Poel. Grazie, Mathieu Van Der Poel. Adesso procediamo con la traduzione delle conferenze stampa. Partiamo da... I think, considering it was at a cross race, I think he just got his uh, pasta mixed up with his fritz, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, it, no, I wouldn't do it. But at the same time, I mean, plain pasta, I, you know, tomato-based sauce, I, I have a hard time blaming him. This also, I feel a- like Euros, a lot of Euro people in the sports world they don't like ketchup for some reason, which is weird to me. As an Amer- we, we put ketchup on plenty of things in America. Including and nuggets. There's like soccer clubs that ban ketchup, which is wild. No, ketchup ketchup is fine. I've never seen anybody's had a problem with ketchup. It's just putting it on pasta that is <laughs> totally <laughs> there, wrong. There are multiple Premier League clubs where, where ketchup is banned in the cafeteria. Ketchup. So the condiment, is just the a, condiment. Is it a nightshade? I don't really know what that is, but... It's like tomatoes are bad for you. Like I, don't, I, don't I, I do it's slightly summer topic. I know that uh, Sean Kelly told us once that bananas were banned on his team until the end of May. <laughs> Weirdly, wow! Because before that, it was too cold, and the extra potassium or something in the bananas would cause the riders to retain weight. Uh, I think it was uh, Gribaldi, the famous director sportif, who banned the bananas on their team. So, um, yeah. I think Sean once tried to ban bananas on our team, but it didn't. Yeah, didn't didn't go down well <laughs> at all. <laughs> but yeah, there, there's there's a few foods that are uh, there's there's a few strange bans going about professional sports. Aston Villa and Tottenham, as, at least as of November of last year. So if if Vanderpool ever plays football, uh, he should not go to either of those two teams. Just wanna... now, I've got vague memories of somebody telling me that fighter pilots. I live on ketchup for some reason. Like it's good for good for fighter pilots or something over. But what what really got me there is Dane saying he wouldn't put ketchup on 
spaghetti. And this is coming from a man who, when I first met him several years back, lived on chicken nuggets at the classics for about a week. <laughs> that hasn't changed, by the way. It, regardless of the time that's passed, that's still the case. Yeah, I, I can understand well, that, Shotty. Can you imagine like a bottle of squirty ketchup and a fighter jet and it ended up all over the one screen? Disaster. <laughs> well, it was a shameful act. Uh, caught on video. And I'm glad that Johnny asked the question. Uh, he did. He did wait until there were no more questions to be asked, uh, which from a from an internal sort of reporter politics perspective is probably a good thing. If you ask a question like that of the leader of the race, while other journalists have like real questions to ask, you, you tend to get a bit of a stare down. Uh, but yeah, nobody else had a question. Johnny dropped in there. This is why we sent him to the Giro. To cover I think that's a pretty hard-hitting stories. question, actually. And I, but I was also pleased with the way that Vanderpool addressed it. You know, he he took it head on. Yeah. He, he talked he, about it. He yeah. also knew. He also knew exactly what Johnny was talking about. Like Johnny didn't show him the video, but Vanderpool had clearly seen that this had resurfaced. Yes, and knew immediately <laughs> what video Johnny was talking about. Uh, anyway, that was it. Was of course the number one story on our site all weekend from a traffic perspective. <laughs> Before we head into Nerd Alert, Dane, uh, it, we're in a bit of a lull-ish in the, in the for the women's peloton. But what's going on right now? Yeah, so it, it's uh, there's there's some racing in Spain that's going to pick up here. And they've already been doing it, but uh, th- this week, uh, so Tuesday's got the Amakamine Nefaroaka Women's Elite, uh, which is a one day, and then there's another one, uh, another one day in the kind of Navarre region, uh, the Navarra Women's Elite, and then. The Itzulia women it finally gets to have its inaugural edition. Uh, last year's was canceled. Uh, so they, they are a world tour, uh, race in the Basque Country, and yeah, after last after last year's attempted inaugural race didn't happen, we finally get to see that this year. So that, that'll be great. Uh, some world tour women's racing with, with plenty of big names there uh, in the Basque Country and three stages of traditionally hilly Basque Country racing. Traditionally hilly Basque Country racing. So that should be really entertaining. Uh, on on the women's side, and I think uh, should should kind of bring things uh, into stage racing mode. What what I like about this race as well is they've they've not pugged it away in the smaller towns. They've literally for the three stages they've hit three big areas, and the final stage is uh, Donostia San Sebastian. Back to Donostia San Sebastian, it looks an absolute solid solid race. It's uh, some of the roads would be similar from uh, yeah the classic San Sebastian, but they're they're not using I, from memory. I'll just have a double check, but I'm pretty sure they're not using the ice ski bell uh, in this race. But there's the the roads around there are all solid, so it is going to be a race well worth tuning into. Just like the just like the men's race was short, sharp, horrible climbs. Should, should be a really good one to watch, especially that last stage. We'll have more on this on the next couple episodes. Let's let's nerd nugget. We got a couple more minutes here, Ronan. We got some new time trial bikes. Yeah, I'm confused as to whether it's December and Christmas time or if it's actually May and Giro time. We've had that many new time trial bikes in in the past week. Um, Nobody else wants a TT bike for Christmas, Ronan. Nobody else. Us. No. No. Well, well, that might just mean that there's more for me, but who knows? Uh, yeah, kind of interestingly though, we've seen. You know, so many different takes on, on what is the fastest uh, time trial bike at the moment. We've had a new bike from Colnago since we last spoke. Of co- This was, of course, our topic for the Nerd Nugget last week as well. Uh, but it was kind of based on rumor last week. And, and since that, we've had, uh, well, first of all, the new uh, BMC Red Bull time trial bike, which came in for quite a lot of flack for being quite uninspiring, despite having spent four years in development with the Formula One team. You look like you want to say something there, Katie. <laughs> I just I thought it was ugly and like it got run into a wall. Yeah, it 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 looked like it got run onto the wall and stretched from behind at the same time. Um, Very weird. It was weird. Uh, and then immediately after that, we had a new time trial bike from Colnago and then one from Kdex. Which yeah, the the Colnago one. You know, you can never really tell if these things are actually fast or not, but certainly the Conago one looked the faster of the two. Uh, it was much more inspiring. Uh, it had this 
sort of peculiar thing going on with the not peculiar at all, but had had this integrated bottle design, which um, you know, yes, it was a bottle capable of holding five hundred millil- milliliters of of liquid, but it was clearly just a fairing, also uh, probably a, a fairing primarily and a bottle secondary, uh, and that that bottle flowed from the down tube uh, onto the seat stays, which were themselves quite unique in that while other brands are you know focusing on dropping the seat stays conago actually just went with a completely horizontal top section of a seat stay that extended you know deep into the rear wheel and then a much shorter seat stay uh, into the rear dropouts uh and then we had the i nearly called it a time trial bike but the triathlon bike from kdex which uh kind of yeah uh, it it we first got a couple of pictures of this a few weeks ago, uh, but it made its debut at the Ironman World Championships over the weekend. And yeah, it, it won, or Christian Blumenfeld won the Ironman World Championships aboard that new KDX frame. Uh, but I suppose more interestingly for us, it's not really the frame itself, but just what that says, you know, KDX have never, it, it's obviously a giant brand. It's their wheels and components brand, super high-end wheels, sort of really expensive uh, components in that but we've never seen them made a frame before. And now the KDX branding all over a frame either suggests that KDX is going to be Giants triathlon brand also, or KDX is going to move into producing bikes and frames and perhaps into that sort of, you know, ultra high-end market that although Giant has made some, you know, really high-end bikes and, and pricey bikes at the same time, they're not known for being, you know, at the same super biker super expensive bike level as as we've seen from other brands so maybe kdex is going to be that that type of bike for them well kdex used to be giant's carbon frame name it, that's what you used to buy the giant bikes under it was kdex and that's where the name came from so maybe they're reverting to that in the long run yeah there it was like the first mass produced carbon fiber frame uh debuted in 1987 i think uh so it's just about as old as me the kdx brand but it, it disappeared for a long time when tcr came around and when yeah. it came back you know it, it wasn't a new frame from giant it was actually a, a, a components brand from from giants uh and then back to the Giro one cycling things we've seen two new bikes over the weekend which you can read about on the website right now is the new scott plasma 7 uh first appeared on the uci list last week so we sort of knew it was coming but then with the one that i've been trying to get to since i started this is the new willier which uh it's safe to say takes a big step uh into the past i think because rather than being purely focused on aerodynamics it's a time trial bike for climbers and is focused purely on weight reduction <laughs> which is Bizarre, given everything that we know uh, in 2022. Uh, bizarre, given how few mountainous time trials we generally have, and when we do have a properly mountainous time trial, it's usually that mountainous that the you know it's never a question over time trial or road bike. It's actually just you know a road bike time trial. Uh, but yes, Willier have gone all out on making a lightweight time trial bike. The front end of the bike looks pretty much identical to the current turbine, but this new turbine SLR basically has this seat tube from a Willier road bike, uh, including that terrible-looking little seat clamp that's featured on the Zero SLR. Uh, and instead of dropping the seat stays, Willier seem to have actually lifted the seat stays. <laughs> They've gone completely against the grain in terms of time trial design. Um, <clears throat> and yeah, it'll just be interesting to see if they come out with some aero data on this, whether or not it's actually, you know, are they going to make claims about it being faster or is it just purely about by weight because we have seen with that new scott plasma 7 and with the merida time warp tpt that we've seen earlier in the year as well they have moved away from the sort of approach that conago went for and you know conago went for you know bigger and more aero profiles everywhere whereas scott and merida and now willier have seemed to sort of take an approach where perhaps the, the airflow is so messy and so disrupted by the time it gets to the seat tube in a way that perhaps there is just no aero gains to be had there seems to be the 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 approach that they're taking and yeah they've just gone to save as much weight as they can one last point in that we started worked out what difference 300 grams might have made for a time trial like saturday that we had in the Giro, and roughly speaking it probably made about just about less than a second's worth of difference so <laughs> probably not worth investing a whole new frame in yeah i mean the, the, but there's still 
still overcoming things within the pro peloton, right? Which is that that the sense that weight kind of matters more than it actually does, and aerodynamics is less important than it actually is. Uh, you know, this goes all the way back to, to I, I, like Contador would always refuse to run deeper wheels, right? He would always want the super light wheels, and you know, as a result, was pushing significantly more watts for most of the day than he than he really needed to. It, it is it's it's changing. And the sort of like the time trial, marginal gains, microscopic gains that we were talking about earlier, I think that that is spreading into the rest of even non-time trialists. But it is it's it's taking some time. That Scott looks really clean. I like the I like the look of that one. It definitely does. Yeah, they've it's gone like, for a much more sort of subtle design. It's you know it, it, as you say, it, it's very very clean. But um, yeah, actually, you know, speaking about that, and we mentioned earlier as well that interview that I had with Dyson. Maybe we'll put a link in the the show notes or something um but he he mentioned in that interview what he calls the mike woods conundrum or the mike woods effect or something where you know basically they have a a, a climber like mike woods and, and it, the the difficulty is usually in working out whether he's better to save energy throughout the day so that he has more energy for the final climb or is he better to have the the lightest weight the most responsive bike for the steepest pitches of the climb whereas which is the only place that he can make an attack uh, and i think that is a you know it's it's a genuinely difficult problem to work out nowadays when the bike struggled to get to 6.8 but the difference with contador 10 years ago was when he was opting for the lighter wheels they had to actually go and add weights to the frame to bring it back <laughs> up to 6.8 kilos. So Right. If, if he'd run 404s instead of 303s, it still would have been 6.8 kilos. Yes. Uh, yeah. Which is going to open anyway. up a whole other hornet's nest within the comments section of this but <laughs> as to why bikes are getting heavier instead of lighter. But yeah, we'll, leave, we'll save that one for another day, perhaps. Save that one for another day. All right. It's time for us to go. Like I said, we'll be back end of this week with more Giro, more Basque Country, everything else that's going on in the world of cycling. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you. Bye-bye. Ciao. Ciao.